Hey, podcast listeners, if you've been keeping up to date with what's going on at our church these days, you'll know that Jeff has announced that he will be leaving Northview this summer. And though while we don't really talk anything about that on this episode of the podcast in particular, we will be recording an episode in coming weeks uh, to talk more specifically with him about that whole transition. Uh, In the meantime, there's other things we want you to be aware of today. Uh, And one of them is that we have a special congregational meeting happening tonight on April 27th at 7.30 p.m. You can find it on our website, and it's where uh, Jeff, our senior leadership team, our elders, will be basically talking through how we got to this point, where we're at now, and where we're going next. So uh, we want you to to tune in there if you're listening to this episode on the day it was released. Uh, You can find that at 7.30 tonight on our website If you're listening to this episode some days later, we are planning to make the live stream available to go back and watch at a later time. So you should be able to find it on our website still. If you have questions that you either want answered at this congregational meeting or just answered in general, you can email them to questions at northview.org and we will have people who answer those questions for you. For now, thank you for tuning in again and we trust you'll enjoy the podcast episode for this week. Hi, I'm Jeff, lead pastor of Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia. And this podcast is where I get a chance to interview people about things that I'm interested in and talk about whatever I want to talk about. Welcome back to another pre-conversation conversation. conversation. Uh, I'm Levi, the producer, as always. Jeff, hey, how are you doing? I'm well. And you are well? I am well. Yeah, I guess you have to ask me because we are not in the same room for the uh, first time recording this. No, we're not. uh, I have been thrust into the the state-mandated quarantine. I shouldn't say state. You know, it's like the federal government-mandated quarantine because I had to go down to the States and watch my son... Pitch baseballs for Major League Baseball scouts, lots and lots of them, and it went amazingly well. And he's a star. Super, super thrilled with him. He's, yeah, he's now planning on just seeing where he might go in the draft. He's talking to lots of Major League clubs and stuff, which is crazy. Oh my goodness, isn't that crazy? Weird. That's pretty wild. Uh, I've known him for a little while because I've been a youth leader here. So I, if you would have told me maybe five, five years ago when he was in middle school that he might be considering Major League Baseball, I don't know how seriously I would have taken you. No, you wouldn't have. I, I didn't either. I was like, eh, whatever. He's just a goofy kid. But you know what? Uh, the Lord has given him lots of favor, lots of ability, and he's very thankful for it. He's handled it really well. I'm very proud of him for not just the ability to do it, but just the way he handles himself and the way he's handled things, and he's really... Um, personable with all the scouts and very kind to them. And he's really committed to following Christ and sees this as an opportunity perhaps for him to be a light in a dark place. So, you know, love it. Love it. He's uh, fantastic. Really proud of him. Yeah, that's a significant evidence of God's grace. So we we trust that'll continue, Lord willing, to be... Yeah, if you're a praying person, you can pray, pray for him. Pray for... It's You know, a lot of people... Uh, most of us experience the other side of it, right? Where we try for something and it and it doesn't work out. 
uh, he's trying for something and it's working out. And that comes with, surprisingly, it comes with a whole bunch of like extra challenges that you didn't think about. He's like the dog when he catches the, when he catches the car bumper there. Yeah. He starts bouncing up and down and all over the place and he's going way faster than he thought it would go. But it is very excited, nevertheless. Yes, the dog is very excited. Yes. It's the ride yeah. of his life. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, I want to I want to talk to you, get your take on something that a lot of Christians have been upset about on Twitter recently. Uh, again, not a surprise yeah. that people on Twitter are upset about things. But there's a rapper, Lil Nas X, who released some Satan shoes in tandem with a music video he put out. Uh, and people are getting all kinds of upset about it. I want to hear you talk about why why people care so much, and should we care as much as we do sometimes? Well, yeah, the first thing is that ni- ni- they're Nike shoes, and Nike got all mad, of course, because they didn't make them. They're putting out statements saying, whoa, 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 this is not a shoe that we did. Uh, he took this shoe, apparently put a drop of human blood in in each soul of the human... I, anyway, it... So and then they painted it up and all that kind of stuff. I, Levi, they don't make them anymore. Is that right? The new the company has yeah. been told to stand down be, or out of threat of lawsuits from Nike and that sort of stuff. You know what? Though I I think the reason a lot of Christians do, especially in the U- U.S., do is because there's a huge background of kind of religious memory in the United States, especially even here in Canada. There is for Christians, they remember the days where you could j- legitimately say that Canada or the U.S. were Christian nations. But if you grew up, I mean, if you grew up in a place like India or uh, another, you know, culture where they're, you know, in Africa or South America, where animism is like a, a, a real thing that happens, a lot of people believe in it, you know, they have the idols in different rooms and you have to make sacrifices to them. Stuff like this is not that, you know, Christians don't like freak out and say, oh my goodness, look at how crazy this is, because they're kind of used to it. They're like, well, this is just what people do in our culture. Uh, so I think the freak out for Christians usually has more to do with the, the cultural memory of a, maybe a better day in their minds, a better day, which is always funny, right? Because the better day always seems to be like 1950s. And that was when black people uh, couldn't drink at the same water fountain as white people and stuff like that. So it, you know, the memory of the great Christian days uh, is not always as, as great as they remember it to be. But, that's neither here nor there. I think that the freak out usually comes, though, because of that. Do you think we're also inclined to just take stuff personally, that when someone does something that uh, is against maybe a group we feel we belong to, we're very quick to claim victimhood? Yeah, without a doubt. It's funny, too, though, that as Christians, we do that really, really quickly, isn't it? I mean, Scripture's really clear when it talks about the fact that we're going to be persecuted or get stink eye or get treated with, you know, disregard. It's just sort of, it, it is. And we're always really surprised when it happens. Like, really? Why is this happening? And you're like, well, actually, you know, Jesus says that you're going to, you know, you're going to be united both in his resurrection and in his suffering. And so the suffering was a result of, and the physical suffering especially was a result of of hatred because of who he was and what he said and what he did. And so if your Christians are representing those things, don't be surprised if there are going to be people around the church and other places with picket signs or with people who say, oh, you're, you're hateful and you're awful and stuff, right? You're actually sharing in the sufferings of Christ when that happens. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good. 
Well, at least as as long as I pleased you, Levi, I'm happy. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a pretty easy audience, so <laughs> they uh, they only made 666 pairs of these of shoes. Of course they did. Of course they and did. They're referencing. They have. Uh, they sold them for a thousand and eighteen dollars. Referencing Luke ten eighteen, a verse about I think Satan being cast down from heaven. So there's some other imagery woven in there. Whatever. Yeah, you get a thousand, a thousand eighteen dollars. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen these people though who try to do like the names of political leaders and they put a number value to each letter and then they either multiply it or add it all up and it equals six hundred sixty six and they're like. Oh my goodness, this person is of the devil because this arbitrary numbers that I put on these letters add up to it. So you're saying don't take this I'm too saying seriously. that you should probably not consider it's it's okay. It's okay. God, our God is on the throne. Even if the world goes sideways and upside down and everything God, God will will work it out. He will work it out. Mm. So just like we shouldn't take Satan shoes too seriously, I want to talk about something else. I don't think you have... should go and buy them, Levi. I'm not going to go out and buy the Satan shoes. I'm not. I'm not. Well, I'm not saying that's what you're saying. <laughs> I don't have that kind of money floating around no, to throw on shoes I don't want. Uh, so we shouldn't be too worried about Satan shoes. Uh, here's another thing: people feel like we're not too worried about anymore is the kind of leaders that we put in office. Uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson recently came out and said he's planning to run for president. Come on! So I wanted to hear from you, Jeff, an American citizen, uh, a celebrity, maybe one or two celebrities, one that you would love to see in office, maybe just for the entertainment value, and uh, one who would be a terrible candidate. Before we do this, don't you think that wars... Do you remember how the, you know, the nation of Israel was uh, threatened by Goliath and they had a deal basically with the Philistines saying, uh, look, instead of all of us fighting against each other, just your biggest guy gets to fight against our biggest guy. Wouldn't, see, that's where you need Dwayne The Rock Johnson being your your president, isn't it? Shouldn't that be the way that world works? Instead of all of us going to war, just your your biggest guy is the president and my biggest guy is the president and we just go, we do a, like a wrestling match. And, yeah, but uh, it would have to be the WWE fake wrestling for Dwayne Johnson to be no, really he's, good. Come at on, it. The Rock, dude. I think he's actually one of the most beloved uh, celebrities these days. So, who would I? Th- who, which celebrity do I think would be would be great? Uh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> See what I did there? Because he was a celebrity. I don't think you can put dead people in office. We, you know, you're right. Uh, you're right. So, so. I actually think that if Tom Hanks were president of the United States, everybody would basically be like, yeah, okay. (laughs) And it's not because anyone knows anything about Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, all you would have to do is go to the debates and refuse to answer any of the questions and just be like, you know, let's not talk about politics here. I just want to talk about some of my movies and how, what I learned from being on location. And do you remember me in Castaway? That was a really good, you know, all he'd have to do is talk about that kind of stuff and everyone would be like, oh, Tom, you got my vote. But who would be the funniest? Is that most what you said? Most entertaining. Who, who would be the most entertaining? Man, it yeah, is going to be... Yeah, not necessarily good. Yeah, but it's going to be like Don, Donald Trump put set a standard for that. I'm, uh, listen, whether you believe in Trump or not, or think that he was great or not great, 
it was genuinely an entertaining few years, right? The freak out that the media had and then his his approach to it all was was genuinely genuinely entertaining in many ways. Uh but could anybody outdo him? Uh perhaps uh what if what if we had like Chris Rock be the president? <laughs> Wouldn't you think like a comedian would be the person you'd want to be president? Jim Gaffigan should be president of the United States, right? Eddie Murphy. Oh, Eddie Murphy would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So a comedian. Adam Sandler. (laughs) Right? Yeah, wearing those baggy basketball shorts. Right, all the time. Yeah. Big old t-shirt. Yeah. There was a movie that came out a number of years ago called Dave. This was in the 90s, I think. And the movie is about a guy who looked just like the president of the United States. And so they brought him in to be kind of like a stand-in. But then the president uh, went into a coma. And so they had to put Dave into the into the role uh, so that people wouldn't think that the president was gone because the vi- they didn't want the vice president to be there. And it was, pr- it was basically like, what would happen if some just normal average guy got in to be president of the United States and just got to throw out first pitches to baseball games and sit in, sit in all the meetings and do stuff. And it's a, it's a great little movie. You should, you should watch it, but that's, that's what we should do is we should just go down the street, find the most honest, upstanding, regular guy. And say, you're now the president of the United States. You get to do it for the next four years and then we'll find the next honest, upstanding guy and we'll put him or woman and put her in to the, to the thing. But so instead, like Kyle Meek, like Kyle yeah, Meeker. Yeah, we should put Kyle in, Kyle Meeker in charge of the presidency. Do you know if Kyle was the president of the United States, uh, no decisions would ever be made about anything, <laughs> but all the options would be presented at every meeting. And then he'd yep. say, "Well, let's think about it a little bit more," and he'd get my head around it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I would be a big fan of Kyle as president. <laughs> good okay uh so we covered some light topics here jeff has done an interview with a guy named steve bray he's involved in church planting in the maritimes they talk about some of the unique challenges the unique opportunities uh, of church planting on the far coast of canada so we think you'll really benefit from that conversation This is Jeff again. I'm here with uh, Stephen Bray. Stephen is a pastor in Newfoundland. Stephen, is it Newfoundland? And should I say that Newfoundland and Labrador? Do I have to combine both those together when I say it? Well, yeah, you're, you'll show a great appreciation for politics if you say Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's just say oh, that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, anyway, Stephen is uh, actively involved uh, in church planting. He's got a great vision for reaching people in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador with the gospel through ministries of local churches. And so he's raising up uh, church planters. He's sending them out. And uh, we at Northview actually are having an opportunity to partner with him, Lord willing, in the days ahead. And um, so anyway, we just wanted to have spend a little bit of time talking to him and find out what his vision is and that. So welcome here. Thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, right now 
you are something like four hours ahead of me. Is that right? Five four, hours? Four and 20, a half. Four and a half hours? Did you guys just add that half hour for we did. fun? There? Newfoundlanders <laughs> love to be unique. <laughs> so, Stephen, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, okay. how you came to faith in Christ. Like, why are you in ministry? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Family? So I'm 49, just had my birthday this year, well, about the kickoff of this year. Born and raised in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, born in St. John's, but raised in a community about 50 miles outside of the city called Harbor Grace. Uh, I'm an only child. My dad's a pastor. Uh, my dad came to Christ when I was five years old, and uh, my mom and dad came to Christ two weeks apart. Uh, but then when mom and dad got saved, they wanted to save the world. So uh, I'm an only child, but by the time I was seven, we had 12 foster kids living in our home, and uh, mom and dad just threw themselves into that. My father left a um, long career in the phone company. He was a spec writing engineer, went to Liberty University. Uh, at that point, long distance, they were doing long distance learning long before that was ever popular, and did it with cassette tapes and everything. And I uh, I grew up listening to the voice of Jerry Falwell in my home quite a bit, um, and wow. uh, yeah, and then he left uh, left that phone company career and became a pastor, and actually, church planted a church in Harbor Grace where I I grew up, which is still functioning to this day. It was in a very conservative Baptist heritage, um, and so met my wife, who is my childhood sweetheart. Uh, met her when I was five years old, and um, we started dating at 16 and got married when uh, I was 20 and she was 21. We have three children and two grandchildren. Um, I got saved when I was 21 years of age. Uh, had a very, so the backstory to that, uh, raised in a very conservative Baptist, like a very independent fundamental Baptist world. Um, my parents spent a lot of time trying to want to reach out to people. But because of that, I was exposed to an awful lot of, I guess, the the dark side of that. So there was some abuse there, some anger issues that I developed a bitterness towards the church in Christ and literally at 14 ran away from home um, out of anger and frustration. And my story is truly a mirror of the prodigal that people read about in the Bible. Uh, my aunt and uncle took me in. It blew our family apart. There was a lot of tension there. And I ended up with nowhere to go. I ended up at a boys' detention center, and uh, a church family of the church in St. John's offered to take me in for a week. I hadn't been to church in months. Uh, that was at the age of Miami Vice, so Jeff, you'll laugh. I showed up at this very conservative church in a yellow double-breasted suit with a pink <laughs> shirt and white patent leather shoes with no socks mm. and whites. I wanted to be Crockett. I wanted you to were be Don Crockett. Johnson. Yes, I was. Nice. I wanted, hadn't cut my hair in months and months, so I had a good mullet going that it was all ducktailed and feathered back. And um, the pastor actually didn't know I was going to be there because, in fact, I don't think he would have allowed me to attend church had he known uh, walked in unbeknownst to everybody, and he actually preached on the prodigal. And um, I, in those days, that was a classic Baptist church. They had an altar call. I went forward, and uh, I called my dad and said, Daddy, I want to come home. And my father dropped everything and came to me. And uh, when the first time I had seen him in months and months and months, he put out his arms and said, Come to Daddy. 
and I fell into his arms. I had practiced my, you know, apology speech. I had practiced why it was okay for me to come home. Before I could get any of that out of my mouth, he said, I, I want to, will you forgive me for failing you as a father? And that broke my heart. Um, and I then told my parents everything that had happened to me. My father left the ministry, went back to his phone career, emptied out our house and gave himself to being my dad. And my dad is my earthly hero. He is actually still 75 years old, um, still in ministry at a little independent church in rural Nova Scotia. But that was the turning point in my life where I started. My father went from being a guy I hated to being a guy I loved. And my father gave himself to giving me a powerful view of God. And at 21 years of age uh, in Nova Scotia, I was newly married. I went through a real season of just, you know, what is faith? What is religion? What is all of these things? And um, on a Saturday night in June of 1993, uh, went to the Lord and just said, "I, I can't play this. Either you're real or you're not. And God opened a door. I had been to a Bible college when I was 17, and I had a single book called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. Mm. And I opened up that book. And of course, as you know, Jeff, in the first chapter of that, to be a preacher of grace, you've got to know grace yourself. And I read those verses in James about being a hearer of the word and, and a doer. And it was like my whole life flashed before me. And I realized that I had been a hearer of the word, but never a doer. I had looked into the mirror of it, but always lived off the coattails of everybody else's. And that night just said, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Here's, here's my sin. I got nothing else to offer you. Here's just me. And um, gloriously started my journey of in a relationship with Jesus Christ from then onward. That's great. Now, were you very early aware of your uh, desire to pastor or was that something that you just kind of fell into? Yeah. So this is a crazy thing. So I said I married my childhood sweetheart the night of our high school graduation. So I wasn't even a Christian. I asked my wife, while well, she was at that point, my girlfriend, I asked her, when, I gave her a promise ring. Well, in Newfoundland, I, we, we, you'd excuse us for thinking she was your wife though, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Just that's, a whole other, that's a whole other set of jokes and, and cultural uh, nuances. But I, I gave her a promise ring and I asked her that night, I actually have a picture of it still of us uh, on a little archway. And I said, can you be married to a pastor? And um, so when I came to Christ on that Saturday night in June, um, we went to church that Sunday. We came back and on Monday morning, actually, it was funny. I, I said to my wife, I don't think I'm supposed to be pursuing the career path I'm on. I, I feel that God wants me to be in ministry. So I resigned my job uh, that week and enrolled in a Bible college and started the journey towards my undergraduate. And within a year of that was a uh, youth pastor at a little Baptist church down in the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia. And I've been in ministry ever since. That's fantastic. So how many years is that that you've been in ministry? Just over 25. Okay. And youth yeah. pastor and that that led to uh, kind of lead pastory yeah. sort of work now, right? Yeah. So I ended up in Prince Edward Island. And Praise I God. took on... Yeah. Do you know that uh, my family's from there? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, that's right. My mother. Yeah. We, uh, we raised our family. Oh, Kensington. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, we raised our family there. I pastored a church called uh, Grace Baptist Church. And I was four years there as the associate pastor. Then the senior pastor there got Parkinson's disease. Um, and we did a role reversal. And then after that, I took on the lead eldership of that church. We, it was Grace Baptist Church in that 15 year ministry was my, was the love of my life. We loved PEI. We loved that ministry, raised our family there, had our daughter there. So I'm a really Atlantic Canadian family. I've got a son born in Nova Scotia. I've got a son born in uh, Newfoundland and I've got a daughter born in PEI. So we've, we're an Atlantic Canada family. Um, wow. And then, but through that, I raised, uh, I got involved with the Gospel Coalition and a few other things, and we started doing a yearly conference at Grace Baptist and PEI, and somebody came from Newfoundland to attend that conference from Calvary Baptist Church in St. John's because they didn't have a pastor. And the lady that came met me in my office and started to weep and said, who's going to come to Newfoundland? And I had talked with the resigning pastor who was from Florida because I had always tried to befriend pastors that went to Newfoundland because people just don't understand what a church in a hard place it is, how isolating it is, all that kind of stuff. And he was only here 18 months and his poor wife couldn't handle the winters and stuff, stuff like that. And so they went back to Florida. So I said, I took out a notebook and said, okay, how can I help? How can I pray? Who do you know, what kind of a person needs to come to Newfoundland? And he said, I think you should come. And I laughed. I literally laughed him off the phone. We tatted. I took some notes. I went home to my wife and said, ha ha, you'll never guess what happened. You know, this guy called and, and I laughed. And so then I called my best friend who is actually church planting in South Africa. And um, he's married to a girl from Newfoundland. We're best friends. And I said, oh, you know, Herb, you'll never guess what happened. Told him the story and we laughed. And he said, are you going to pray about it? I said, no, I'm not going to pray about it. I love it here in PEI. And he said, well, you're a hypocrite. And I'm like, well, you know, thanks very much, best friend. He said, look, I'm not telling you you're called to Newfoundland, but anybody who whines about Newfoundland as much as you do, and you're not even going to pray about it, I think that's hypocritical. So that got me thinking. I guess that was as close to my Calvin moment when his friend, uh, you know, charged him. And so I went home to my wife and said, how would you feel if I said we should pray about going back to Newfoundland? And you got to realize, Jeff, we, we were adored by our church in, in, in Charlottetown. The church was growing. We had a massively growing Christian school. The ministry was developing. You know, what what pastor didn't want to come to PEI? And I, I never invited any pastor who said no, ever. And um, anyway, the long story short of that, in October of 2015, I announced my resignation to Grace Baptist Church and in January, we were in Newfoundland pastoring a church with 24 members and an average attendance of a little over 50 in a city that is less than 1% even attends an evangelical church. And that was six and a half years ago. So describe for me a little bit the spiritual climate of Newfoundland. Um, yeah, I, I'm just interested to know. There's mm. a lot of people who would say, if you ask them, what's the kind of the least Christian part of North America, they might say Montreal yep, or uh, Quebec, which would be a good guess. Yeah, um, it would be. But Newfoundland's pretty, yeah. pretty close. So what, it, what, what confuses people about Newfoundland is because we've got a history, we've got a, a reputation for our humor, our hospitality, our niceness, our, we're resilient because of everybody knows the stereotypes of Newfoundland, but, and we have a big history of religion. 
um, Newfoundland. St. John's is the, well, we would claim it to be the oldest city in North America. It was founded by John Cabot in 1497. So it's well over 500 years old. So in Newfoundland, there are five religions. You're either Catholic, Anglican, United, Salvation Army, or Pentecostal. If you're not one of those five things, then you were looked at with great suspicion and cynicism. So until the 1970s, a Baptist was registered at our provincial government as a cult. And uh, so that's, that's how it is here. So we are culturally religious. When you think of Montreal and Quebec, th- think Newfoundland, like that kind of entrenched cultural Catholicism. But because of sexual abuse scandals, we had one of the largest sexual abuse scandals in North America called the Mount Carshall Boys Home um, scandal that only actually wrapped up this year. And the Catholic diocese is liquidating churches to pay off all the plaintiffs and stuff like that. So there's a strong sense of suspicion, but there's cultural religion. We had a religious school board until 1997. My mother, the, her generation, you give her a last name and she knows if you're Catholic or Anglican or whatever. And so the only evangelical force in Newfoundland and Labrador has been Salvation Army. William Booth sent a couple here in, um, I think, 1898. And then a woman that had been converted in the Azusa Street revivals in 1911. No, sorry, late, early 1900s. Came, felt God the Holy Spirit told her to come to this island. And so I think it was either 1911, she brought Pentecostalism uh, here. And um, so that's been the only thing. But across the province, there's a a bit of a presence of Salvation Army and Pentecostalism. But in the city of St. John's, where almost half our population is, there's a quarter of a million people here. There are only 22 evangelical churches total of every stripe. And their combined average Sunday attendance wouldn't be 2,000 people. Wow. So it's, it's I mean, you, you use the language, and I've heard you say it before, uh, hard, difficult ground. It's a difficult right. place to do ministry. What makes it difficult? So, again, we have this reputation for our humor and our hospitality, our friendliness. We are the per capita most generous uh, province in all of Canada. But... We are also very culturally entrenched. And so a lot of people mistake our friendliness and our hospitality and our humor for acceptance. And we're not a very accepting province. Um, We are very um, mistrusting, very cynical. We view outsiders very suspiciously. Um, And because of the history of religion and the scandals, and because Newfoundland hasn't had that kind of broad-brushed evangelicalism that many other people are used to coming through here, anything new has been viewed suspiciously. And because of the isolation, the very unique culture, the very harsh climate, many people have come and tried to do things here, but they haven't stayed. And so every time there's a failure, that ups the mistrust and the cynicism. Now, with that comes entrenched. So with the oil boom that happened here in the late 1990s, early 2000s, whenever I describe St. John's, I think I always tell people, think of if Las Vegas and um, Anchorage, Alaska mated and had a baby, St. John's would be be the baby. So we have isolation, we have money, and we are idle. So we're the highest alcoholism 
city in Canada. We have the highest rate of sexually transmitted disease in Canada. We have the highest divorce rate. Well, not only that, but the lowest marriage rate. So there's a lot of what we call ser- serial monogamy, cohabitation. You know, one woman has three children, but three different dads, um, those types of things. So it's a it's a very, you know, there's a reason. There's a lot of power drinking here. We're a partying culture. And many people think they're okay because they were confirmed. They, they have their church. So I can have religious conversations here all the time. But the moment you move and say your church doesn't save you, now, now that's, that's, that's a fighting thing to say. Newfoundlanders love to fight. We have an expression here. If you've got 10 Newfoundlanders, there's 12 opinions in the room. And we love to argue and fuss and fight. And so a lot of people that have come to Newfoundland and tried to plant churches have initially been very excited because people are very accepting and hospitable, but then they get very quickly discouraged because two years later, people will eat with you, but they're not coming to your church. Hmm. And so a lot of people have tried. And in fact, I believe there hasn't been a successful church plant in Newfoundland in probably 30 years. But you're trying to change that. That's your, <laughs> that's your vision. Tell me, yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, your vision and tell us that there's, it's, you've got a name for it. Right. So when I came here in January of 2015, I promised Calvary Baptist that I would pastor for a year and just get to know my flock. And then I would just study my city and study it and pray for it. I went everywhere in the city. Um, preached through First Timothy uh, about what is a biblical foundation for a church. And through that, I felt that the Lord laid it on my heart to start this ministry, a church planning ministry called Mile One Mission. And so what I did was I studied the history of the church movement in Newfoundland and our city, st- tried to really look at what were the big churches, small churches, how do Newfoundlanders relate to each other. And for years and years, decades, many people, the model was, let's start a church, grow it to be as big as possible, gather as many people here, and none of that's working. I mean, in all of St. John's, the largest church here has an average weekly attendance of 600, and that is the biggest church, and it's the biggest church in the history um, of evangelicalism in Newfoundland and Labrador. So, but yet, we are a very family-driven, neighborhood-driven culture. So what I felt that we needed to do was instead of trying to plant big churches, get back into our neighborhoods, get back into the low level, grassroots level. So we cast a vision to think we started a church planning network out of Calvary called Mile One Mission. Nobody outside of Newfoundland would understand that. Everybody in Newfoundland understands it because the Trans-Canada Highway officially starts going east to west and Mile One is right in front of our city hall in St. John's. Our stadium is called Mile One Stadium. So we even named that for Newfoundlanders to recognize it. So I have to explain myself to everybody outside of Newfoundland, and I'm comfortable with that because I wanted Newfoundlanders to know this is something that's Newfoundland-driven. So our goal is to plant neighborhood churches strategically across our city, Very ambitiously, as we develop up Calvary, we're going to try and start 10 churches over the next decade in our city. And the goal is not to build big mega churches. If there are 100 to 200 people, but everybody in that church will come from its specific neighborhood. And so we feel, I asked my elders when we started this journey, I said, what do you think would be better for St. John's? 
a single church of 2,000 or 10 churches of 200 strategically spread out across the city, influencing their neighborhoods. And after we prayed for that for quite a while, we all got unified around the idea that what was best for Newfoundland was 10 strategic churches across our city. And so we started out with that model and we've been building it. We've got our first church plant called Kilbride Community Church, which is in a neighborhood of the city. Kilbride actually means hill. It's a Gaelic word. And uh, there hasn't been a church in that neighborhood in 130 years. And we now have a little core group of almost 20 people. They've had their first convert working towards their first baptism. And our next church plant will be in the downtown area of St. John's. And then we're starting to strategically spread out from there with Calvary functioning as kind of the hub church, mother church that will resource and so on and so forth. So we're recruiting interns, trying to raise up Newfoundlanders, but also get people to come from outside of Newfoundland. But unlike all the other history, we've had Americans come, mainlanders come, they get parachuted in here. They don't know the history. They've got no support network on the ground. We have, well, every church plant attempt in the last 30 years has lasted a light, an average lifespan is 18 months and then it folds. So now when we bring people in, like we just had a, a guy come from Biloxi, Mississippi, just moved here in the last month, but he now of is interning. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I've learned a few things about Mississippi, Jeff. <laughs> anyway, um, but he's now here with us. He's interning with us so he can learn the culture with us. We can interpret some of the cultural reactions he's experiencing, and he doesn't have to learn it the hard way. He's got someone to help him and so on and so forth. So that's the goal, and that's why we're so excited to have churches like Northview come alongside us because we need it. Um, this is a poor province. It's an expensive province. You're not going to get your typical church planter letters uh, that, you know, a lot of people look for. But the great thing about Newfoundlanders is when they get saved, they get all the way saved, including mm. their wallet. And to give you an example, our church, Calvary Baptist, we have just about 70 members. So we have tripled in size membership wise in the last five years. We have about 150 people now called Calvary Home. That little church of 70 people will bring in over $300,000 for their yearly budget. So if we raise up a church of 50 to 75 people, they're self-sustaining. So our people are like our oil. It's expensive to get to. You need a lot of upfront infrastructure, but we have the cleanest oil in all of the world when you pump it out. And so I'm trying to convince people to partner with us help be patient in those first few years. Let us get the infrastructure right. Let's get the people right. And then when we start to pump this out and see souls saved, we'll have lasting churches. So Stephen, uh, this is a, a, a great vision, um, but I'm wondering uh, what are the barriers that you're experiencing to it? Um, what are the hard parts? Where's the choke points? Yeah. So, the number one obstacle that we face is time in the sense of the patience of the process of planting churches here because it is a church in a hard place and because we have to overcome so many cultural, religious barriers of people trusting us and believing we're not here just to pillage the province, get what we want, and then leave. So it takes time to get Newfoundlanders to trust you. So when you're looking for partners and you're looking for people to, to come and join this, this ministry, 
we we have this paradigm and we think, oh, well, you know, two, three years, a church should be up and running. And I'm telling people, no, I need five minimum. And so one of those are the obstacles. So what I've tried to do with churches, now we are blessed to have congregations like Northview, but as you know, Jeff, in Canada, even Northview churches are few and far between. Uh, you know, the, the church landscape of Canada is a bit more mom and pop. And so what we've tried to do is cast a vision while we're thankful and we need churches like Northview. I need guys and congregations that have big vision and God is blessed and they've come together. I've tried to appeal to the regular smaller church across the country and say, look, mission and church planting is often, I think, like the mob until you're dead or I dead, we're dead, we're stuck together. Um, so I've tried to give a five-year, seven-year, 10-year partnership journey vision. And if we could just get churches across our country to say, we can do $200 a month for Mile One Mission, but we're with them for that five, seven, or 10-year period. Believe it or not, we can then sustainfully recruit interns and planters and establish these churches. And so what I'm trying to, to cast a vision across our country is, if, if God allows me to do what I want to do, and in 10 years, there are 10 churches here of 50 to 100 people. Well, if God blesses this, we will have changed the religious landscape of a city in one decade that hasn't been done in four centuries. And what could God then do that if that model could then spread through the rest of Atlantic Canada and quite frankly, start going from West to East and meet somewhere in the middle. Um, and that's why, I mean, you know, I, I've developed a friendship with you, but Mark Birch is such a dear brother who's believed in us and championed for us. And, and I do think there is a grassroots movement of churches of strategic thinkers thinking this way about our country. So while I'm focused on St. John's and Newfoundland and Labrador, I'm blessed to be a part of, you know, friendships like yours and with and others in Northview and other pastors in, in Vancouver, where we're thinking even our country, not just our own province or our own city. So Stephen, people are listening to this and they're going to want to know how uh, they can pray or maybe get involved uh, with, with you. You have a website or yeah. uh, some stuff that they can pray about. Yeah. Well, obviously, mile1mission.ca, I would tell everybody, go check that out. There's lots of profiles there on our first few planters, our interns, our vision, all we're doing. There's some great videos there. Um, to be honest with you, so here's what I never thought. When I thought at this, I thought this was going to run so slowly. And we kind of officially kicked this off in 2019. Then COVID hit. And I just thought, okay, What's Lord, that? <laughs> what now? And our country has taken a very cautious posture, as you well know, in COVID. Well, especially out in Atlantic Canada. Very, very, <laughs> very cautious. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm able to meet with 100 people, which I guess is a little bit better than what you can do. But um, <laughs> It's quite a bit better. <laughs> but I only have 27 active cases of COVID in our entire province. And so that tells you how cautious it is. But so... Here's my thing. God has opened up doors. We've got our first church plant about to launch consistent services. We're hoping to start our second church plant before the end of this year. Believe it or not, I have two other church plant neighborhoods ready to go. And a church in Labrador, has, which is kind of folded up, has reached out to us. So we could have five church plants going. What I don't have, I need three more planters and I need at least six to eight more interns. So if people would pray that God would lay it on their hearts to come to Newfoundland 
And then to make all this happen, I need to, obviously, I need more church partners that can help us fund that. And even in the midst of all this COVID, this has been happening. And I, I, I thought that, you know, I, when I first started this, my goal was if, Lord, if by 2025, we could have five more churches, if I had the personnel and the partners, we could have five churches by the end of 2022. And, and that, I just never thought that was possible. And so if, if you're, if you're, you know, church folks and listening audience would just pray that God would send people and that God would open the door and quite frankly, help us be allowed to travel again. Uh, I have so many places that I can go, but COVID has stopped that. But in the face of that, the gates of hell have not prevailed against COVID here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, the church, yes, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Amen. Um, I hope they prevail against COVID. Um, Stephen, this has been fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for spending the time talking to me about this Mm. and giving people a picture for it. That's one of the things that I really love about, um, well, just connections that we've had through the years uh, in conferences and other places is be able to see what the Lord's doing in different parts of the country. Mm. I think sometimes our churches get stuck thinking about just their own little backyard or they might hear a story about somebody in Thailand, which is fantastic as well, but they don't really know what's happening within Canada, even during times like COVID, is how the Lord's moving in places. <laughs> yeah. So we should be encouraged by that. If you have any questions or stuff, Stephen is probably pretty happy to interact with you, I'm sure, especially if I you're am. somebody who's an intern or wants to wants to talk about uh, financial sport or anything like that. He's very happy to interact with you. You can get all his information on his uh, website, which is, again, mile1mission.ca. Mile1mission.ca. Stephen, before you go, I have to ask you this, okay? <laughs> I, listen, I just want your best Newfie joke. Okay. Okay? I, I know, Listen, I know that it's... I'm a, rubbing a, my hands with glee. It's <laughs> offside for me to ask this. But first of all, why are Newfies... Newfies I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... I grew up outside of the Canada, so like yeah. when I've come here, I don't really understand the, the jokes about them. Why are Newfies made... Why do people make jokes about them? Well, you know, I think, again, we, we're down here, we speak with a different accent. I mean, there are 17 dialects in Newfoundland and Labrador... And some of them, Jeff, I don't understand. And I mean, I'm I'm pretty articulate, but I'll, pro- I'll pro- probably already people have figured out I talk very fast, and I'm a slow talker compared to most of my uh, compatriots. What is the best kept secret is most Newfoundland jokes are actually created by Newfoundlanders. We <laughs> make fun of ourselves. We tell people when they come, if people are here are being polite to you, they don't like you. <laughs> All right. So our our our, sarc- our humor is sarcastic. We're belittling. We we do this so we 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 give people funky nicknames. We mock their heritage. We we it's just it's a way we interact and way we show love because you know our winters are long and hard. Our coast is rugged. I think we are a tough people. Fishermen tend to be tough and and stuff. But you know. But I I think a lot of people are probably watching Solid Rock Builders right now, which is on HGTV, I think, about a construction company, and often they need subtitles and all that. And again, we're called The Rock because literally our island is one big giant boulder. And so we're aptly called The Rock. It's not the movie. Um, it is It is our, 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 our landscape. But so here's my favorite joke. I mean, I've heard lots of them. Well, you know, um, one one is many of them are spinoffs. I, I I got two for you. One is you know the classic Newfoundland joke is three couples go to a restaurant, 
first couple sit down and, and, you know, they're all sitting down and one husband says, I need to show these other couples how much I love my wife. And he goes, would you pass the sugar, sugar? And everybody's, oh, that's so sweet. And so the other couple, you know, I got to do my thing. So he says, honey, will you pass the honey, honey? Because, you know, and so now the Newfoundlander is there and he's like, I got to show these guys how much I love my wife. So he says, would you pass the tea bag? <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so that's, that's All the right. classic one. But my favorite one, Jeff, Newfoundlander dies and goes to hell. So the demons come to Satan and say, we've got a Newfoundlander. So he says, ah, then turn up hell. I want to cook hell, like turn it up seven times hotter. Make this. I know where he's coming from. Let's make it hot. So they do that for a week. Satan sends his demons to check on him and they come back and they're like, Satan, he's loving it. He's got his Bermuda shirt on and his shorts. He's jumping around going, I love this heat. I love this heat. So Satan says, I know how I'll get this Newfoundlander. I'll do reverse psychology. So he says, freeze hell. Just freeze it over. So they do it. First time ever, they freeze hell over. He says, now go find that Newfoundlander and find out what he's doing. They come back and they say, he's dancing. What? He's dancing going, the Leafs won the cup. The Leafs won the cup. Hell is frozen over. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Those are my two good ones for you, there buddy. There it is. There's nothing like a good hell joke to keep you. Uh, well, Stephen, God bless you. Thanks so much for spending time with me, Thank buddy. Thank you, brother. Um, we will be in touch, of course, uh, a bit yeah. in the days ahead. May God bless you and all the stuff that you guys are doing, okay? Thank you so much, Jeff, and love to your entire church uh, family too, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Uh, And we'll talk to the rest of you later. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Jeff. Make sure you subscribe to catch up on all upcoming episodes. So until next time, love God, do what you want, and don't be stupid.